appreciate it. Service, definitely. Thank you, folks, for singing those two songs. You know, as I ponder over the week and I keep thinking of different messages that really ought to be preached, there should be a message on love. Will you preach that message by singing that song? Nothing goes well without oil, machinery, and nothing will go well without a big measure of love in all of our hearts, a good dose of it. Appreciate that. It was uh, just a couple of things that I thought of as concerning the message yesterday. One of the things, as we think of church standards relate to you just, hey, it wasn't that many months ago we had a brother's meeting and we brought a topic up of discussion and one brother pipes up and says, you know, he thinks that if we keep talking about all these practical things, it's going to make us critical one of another. The topic of discussion that evening was uh, how do we keep the Lord's Day? I've taught on it numerous times. I'm one of those that believe there's a principle laid out in creation. Of course, the Sabbath day has been fulfilled in Christ, but that principle hasn't gone away. There's a principle there that the early church kept one day in seven. And so it's, it's, uh, I think, what we need to do today. We are kind of losing it. And it seems like we have no problem going shopping on a Sunday, going out to eat after church, those kind of things. And so we made it a topic of discussion, not that we had a, I don't feel had a big need in our congregation, but it's definitely good to talk about it. And so he pipes up saying, you know, I wonder if this will make us critical if we keep, you know, talking about these different things. Well, uh, you know, it kind of puts me in the hot seat. Now, how do I answer that one? Well, I was just so blessed. There were a couple of brothers who just piped up and one brother used this illustration. He said, now, he knows, this brother knows where I'm at, that I wouldn't go shopping on a Sunday unless it was a true emergency. He said, if I'd see Leonard at the corner store in town, I would have to just assume the fact that he must have a child that has fever, they have nothing, no Tylenol, and he felt the need to get some. It wouldn't make me suspicious at all. I know where he is. I know what he believes. I know how he feels about it. There would be no suspicion. But you know, it depends what other brother I'd see out there at the corner store. I'd kind of like, I wonder how often they conveniently have to buy something on a Sunday. And so, I think the enemy likes to throw in these things just to try to see if he can't derail us a little bit. But I think if we're really honest with each other, and I mean we have to be honest, if we're really honest with each other, it brings a lot of rest in the soul. There's not as much assuming. There's not that critical. I know my brother. I, I, I know how he would respond. And if he does something that kind of... I wonder what he's doing that for. Well, I... I believe the best of them. Really appreciate it, um, Brother 
uh, Larry had mentioned about the rumble strips. And if you want to use that illustration of the highway and keeping your eyes on the road and on the center line, I think the rumble strips might almost fit better than the guide rails. But anyhow, however you'd like to do that, I just appreciated that. That'll, I'll probably carry that one with me now. But as soon as he said it, something came to my mind. We do a bit of traveling. And um, my wife and I like nighttime draft driving. You can just go. There's nobody in the way. There's no traffic jams for the most part. And so we'll start late in the afternoon. We'll drive all night long. We'll take shifts. And so while she's driving, I'm sleeping. And so I'm back there. I'm sleeping. And as soon as she hits the rumble strip, I'm up. And I'm like, is everything okay? Yeah, don't worry about it. So I go back to sleep again. And you know, I thought, that's interesting. You know, if we have some of these rumble strips in our congregation, rather than making us look suspicious at each other, and, you know, it, it all of a sudden, hey, brother, I heard you hit the rumble strips. Is everything okay? Is everything okay? Yeah, so, one of the times, though, that I drove... All night long, almost all the night, I was just feeling good. And I left my wife sleep. I was driving. Finally, we, we early in the mornings, I turned it over to her. I crawled on the back seat. I slept. And all of a sudden, in my dream, I was driving and I fell asleep. And I just up over the back seat to try to get a hold of the steering wheel. I was looking to see what, you know, what's in front of me. Oh, my heart was just pounding. I laid back down again. I was like, that was so scary. So I might have drove too long that time. I really enjoyed my week here. I really enjoyed it. I do miss my family a whole bunch. I was very thankful my daughter could come. That was pretty special. I am, I am a family man. I love my family. I'm looking forward to getting back. I'm sad that my flight don't go out till tomorrow evening, but that's okay. Thank you for allowing me to be with you. Uh, sometimes I'm a little bit too radical for some people. And so I would just encourage you that if you feel like it was... A little bit too radical in some areas. Don't throw everything out. Don't throw everything out. I need my brothers and sisters to also balance me. But I want the truth. And I'm willing to pay the price for the truth. I want to be on the right road. And so I really felt it was a need to look at the home the home and its effect on the church. I mean, that's what we are. We're a whole bunch of homes and we're all coming together. And we're, we're all a bunch of hives of our own and we all try to be one big colony. And that can have its interesting effect. That can have its challenges. So, what is the effect? We know as the individual, so goes the home. As the home, so goes the church. As the church, so goes the society. We can stand here and we can point a finger all we want. 
at the world around us, but I think we need to start pointing it at ourselves. The world today is where they are because the church hasn't stood for truth. Truth has fallen in the streets, as Isaiah says. And so let's be careful that we don't point too much of a finger out there and say, what are we doing as a church? We're the light of the world. We are that uh, lighthouse on the shore beckoning men and women. We've got the answers, brothers and sisters. They don't have the prisons, don't have the answers. All those ministries out there, they don't have the answers. The government don't have the answer. The church has the answer. But you know, it works the same way. We can sit here and we can point a finger at the church. But you know, the church is made up of a bunch of homes. And I think one of the most challenging things of having a beautiful church fellowship is the challenge of our homes. The material to build a good church is what we need. Is we need, we need men and women who are walking with God. That's what we need. Men and women who spend time in the Word. Men and women who are allowing the Holy Spirit to take their character and their expressions and make them into the very image of God. We need, we need men who have loved their wives into being the beautiful wives that they can be. We need men who can be leaders in their homes, strong men, loving men, that can lead their homes what is so frightful to me is that you can see folks go on in their own spiritual life. You know, they're, they're kind of mediocre and that's just the way they live life. Uh, we can see homes and needs in the homes and, and, and it's such a cry for something higher and it just continues to ride on. Uh, to me, something don't make sense. You know, I think of the, the uh, little, little Grecian maid who... Uh, each day she went down to the river for water, and one day on her way down to the river for water, she saw them building something, building something right in the town square. And here, as days went on, here they built this beautiful monument of a beautiful Grecian woman. Just, I mean, she was awestruck at the beauty of this woman. She was just a little maid, and so every day when she walked by, she'd stop and she'd gaze up into the face of this Grecian woman. And then she'd hurry on her way. She'd get her bucket of water and go back home. And then she'd stand and she'd begin comb her hair and straighten out her hair. And then she'd go back the next day. She'd gaze and she'd go back home again. And she'd wash and clean herself. And then she'd sew her clothes. You know. And this went on from day to day. And after a while, guess what? She looked like the Grecian woman, the statue. And for some reason, that's the way I think it should work. You know, all of us should be so content to be like Jesus Christ that we should sit and hear a sermon, then we run home and, and we get alone in our closet and allow God to work in our hearts. And we go back and we, we get into the Bibles again and then we... Get alone with God and allow Him to do that work in our heart. And these things should be happening all the time. All the time. And in our homes, corporately. So we need, we need those kind of people if we're going to build church. 
I thought of Joshua 24. There, Joshua, at the end of his life, he's talking to the children of Israel. And he's saying, you know, just he's taking it back over their history. Just look how God has led us. Just look how God has led us. And then he kind of brought them to a challenge and uh, challenged them whether they're actually going to continue to follow God. And then he said something that's a bit perplexing. I haven't always known what to do with it, and I might still not know exactly what to do with it, but I'm going to use it this way. He said to them, oh, you want to serve God? Well, I'm here to tell you, you can't serve God. You can't serve God. And He's going to turn around and hurt you. And you know, sometimes I look at churches and I look at the men and the women and then I look at the homes and then I look at the fathers in the homes and then I look at how the women are relating to their husbands and, and then I look at the young people and I say, Sorry, you can't serve God. Is it, is it actually going to work? Are you going to be able to make it? Well, I believe better things of you all. I believe better things of you all. I believe God's grace. But when we see so many things that just make it so hard to build church, then I wonder... You can't serve God. Fathers, we got fathers that are so weak in leadership. They're so weak in leadership. They don't take leadership in their home. They don't stand up and get a vision for their homes and then lead. But they don't have any backbone. They don't have any strength. Who's leading? Sometimes the wife is leading the home. I mean, it's very evident. She's the one that's leading the home. And the father's just kind of following along. Or in some homes, the children are leading. And he's just like the tail on a puppy dog. Dog's walking and the tail just follows wherever the dog goes. And that's about some of our fathers. And I look at that and say, you can't serve the Lord. You can't serve the Lord. You know, ministers are ordained. There are qualifications. And sometimes we do a poor job at seeking God. And we ordain ministers that just can't fill their responsibility. But I'm there to tell you, you are a father just simply because you chose to marry a woman and God gave you a children. It has nothing to do whether you were qualified or not qualified. You might sit there and say, I'm not qualified. I'm here to tell you you don't have a choice. You need to be a leader. God expects you to be a leader. And He will hold you accountable for being a leader. So we have fathers who are so weak in their leadership. And you know what they do? They're looking for the church to raise their families. I'm sorry, that's not the church's job. That makes church so hard if the, if the church has to raise the young people. I had one minister who uh, I was, was involved there, some with the church, and he was really encouraging me to, to set some lines in the church there. And I saw right through it. I said, hello, that's not my job. You want, to make, you want me to do your job in your home. That's not my job. You need to go home. You need to get along with God. You need to find the grace of God. You need to stand up and you need to give direction in your home. It's not the church's job. Then, of course, we have 
as I said, fathers who just follow their children. We have fathers who either do not or cannot create in their own home the community vision. Just where the family just loves to be together. Oh, just that loving atmosphere. I'd rather be no other place than with my family. Let the world go on. Let them go on. I just want to be home with my family. Oh, if we could have that. What a blessing. What a blessing. Fathers, we have fathers that are lazy, they lack vision, they're inconsistent, they're insensitive, they're cruel, they're harsh, they're angry. And we're trying to somehow build the church with that kind of material. Joshua said, you you can't. You can't serve the Lord. And then, of course, the other challenge that many times we have in our churches, because the fathers are lacking And the women lead the home. The women lead the home. The father's laid back. The woman's more aggressive. And we even have mothers who actually undermine the father's authority in the home. That happens. I've seen it done. And another thing that really makes church life difficult is... Wanting marriages. Wanting marriages. There's a lot of men who would have a tremendous ability in teaching in the pulpit, uh, getting involved in the church, but they're crippled. They're crippled. They can't get anywhere because they are not one with their wife and they're continually battle on that front. And it just chains them down. And the thing I don't understand, it goes on for years and years and years. And I don't know, I, I'm, I guess I'm too simple. I think when the person truly gets born again and God's love fills their heart and they get a vision for walking with God, they also get a vision for their marriage. And with the God's love in their heart, I still, I still, have it, I still wonder at the fact there that a man cannot win the heart of his wife. I mean, if he is so kind and loving and caring and, and, and God has, has just went in there and took his heart and took his old habits and made them into new habits. And he's just this wonderful leader who knows how to lead and do it with strength and yet with kindness. Relates to his wife with understanding. I, I still... I still wonder if there's men. I don't think there's many women that couldn't be one. And yet these problems go on and on and on. And then we're trying to build church. And then, of course, we have young people such an asset. Oh, they, young people are such an asset to the church. I love our young people. I love to maintain a relationship, build relationships with them, enjoy them, spend time with them, praying with them, playing with them. Um, Such a blessing, but we try to build church with children who never even learn to submit to their parents. 
They want their own way. They just want their own way. They are rebellious. They're just... And so, as Joshua, you can't do it. You can't do it. Definitely not that way. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to look at three areas today. We're going to look at the father's responsibility. We're going to look at the mother's responsibility. We're going to look at the children's responsibility. And I can spend a lot of time on it, but we're going to hit on a couple of areas. Genesis chapter 18. I'd like to use this, these, this verse, uh, these couple of verses here, uh, bring a couple challenge to us as fathers. Genesis chapter 18. And we're looking at verse 17. This is where God was ready to deal with Sodom. And He had a plan. He had a plan. And you know, before He acted out that plan, He started questioning, you know what, I wonder if I should let Abraham in on this. I think that is <laughs> that is so beautiful. Man, if you walk with God, if you're loving God, if you're in tune with God, God wants to do something big, He's going to... You know what? I think I should knock on a few men's hearts first. And so then the way it works is, Elvin, he's all trembling. He has to bring something up. And he brings it up in brothers' meeting. And here all of a sudden, a whole bunch of brothers are like, Hey, God was just knocking on my door. I was just thinking about that this week. And over there's another one. And over there's another one. And all these men are in tune. And God is giving away His secrets. That's the way to have church. So, 17, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham this thing which I do? Shall I hide it from him? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon him upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. The first thing, man, we want to look at, fathers, is God said, I know him. I know him. That means here's a man that must walk with God. As Enoch did, he walked with God. I know we're too busy. We don't have time to walk with God. I mean, our minds are a million miles away when we're supposed to be getting into the Word of God and studying the Word because I'm a leader. I've got a wife and children to teach. Or we've got a business going. Our mind is a million miles away. God said, I know him. Abraham must have walked with God. Brothers, we have to walk with God. May it be said of you, I know Him. I know Him. So important. So here's a man who walks with God, who communes with God. A man who is filled with the Spirit. But what do we have? We have discouraged fathers. Fathers who just feel like, I'm, I just mess up. I, I just can't do it. I... I can't feel my responsibility. They walk around with their head in the sand. They walk around sitting under their juniper tree. Brother, I just talked to recently. And again, I saw he was discouraged. I could see it written all over him. And so I called him up on the phone. I said, Brother, I see that you're, I've noticed that you're really discouraged. Am I correct? Have I took your pulse right? He says, Yeah, I am. I said, I understand. You're going through some really difficult things. 
But you know, there where, uh, I don't even remember Nehemiah, Ezra, somebody, they were reading the law there and the people were all being smitten in their heart at the good word of the Lord and they started weeping and and, and the word went out. This is not a time to weep. This is a time to go and take, go home and eat and rejoice and, and share with your neighbors. And it's a time. And I said, I know you're going through something really hard. But this is not the time to sit under your juniper tree. You've got to get up. You've got to be a leader. You've got to go forward. Your family needs you. Your wife needs you. They need to see that you're willing to go forward even through tough times. This is not a time to sit under your juniper tree I think some of us some of us fathers need to go cut that thing down it's too much of a temptation to go sit under the juniper tree like Elijah did we need to cut it down we need to destroy it we do not have time to be discouraged and then of course we have unbroken fathers who've never never who haven't allowed the complete work of uh God's discipline in their life. The complete work of God's discipline in their life. Just allowing God to make them men and women, or men who they should be. We need men who read the Bible and pray, and that the light of God's presence shines in their faces. Missionary John Patton, he said, I never forgot my father's deeply ingrained habit of daily devotions. Day after day, he said, he would hear his father in the other room and his father was praying. They just had a little cottage. He'd hear his father praying. And even as a boy of six, he said he noticed the bright countenance that was on his father's face perpetually. The rest of the world out there saw it too. But nobody else knew it. Only John said our family knew. Dad would get alone and he would talk with God. And God knew him. And he knew God. And when he went through the world, only the family knew. This man spent time alone with God. And I don't think it matters how long it is. I think it matters if we make that connection with God. One of the things I find just astonishing that there would be fathers who live in defeat. They live in sin. Time after time, failure. We can't, we can't, we can't lead our families. We can't lead our families. Fathers, fathers who are addicted to pornography, we can't lead our families. We can't. Fathers who are addicted to anger. And it just goes on and on. We can't lead our families. We can't. We need fathers to rise up. Get serious about God. Walking with God. Clean, allowing God to clean up their life. And then their life becomes not only a testimony, but it actually becomes a point of gravity. For the hearts of their wives, the hearts of their children, the hearts of their brothers and sisters, the hearts of their neighbors are just, it's like a magnet. You're almost, it's magnetic. 
Verse 19, it says, For I know him that he will. He will. That's our next challenge, fathers. We need to know him, but we need to will. And we heard that yesterday. Brother Larry brought that out so good. He will. Nothing will stop this kind of a man. He's got a vision. He has his eyes set and his, his, the, the mark is in his eye. He knows what he's going for and he's going to go for it. He is going to go for it. He will. Money will not stop him. Business will not deter him. He is first and first of all a family man. A family man. Some of us, our homes aren't what they want and so we just kind of divert to the next thing. And so we pour out our lives and we find fulfillment in our businesses. We have to repent. Family has to be first. Must be first. So, I know Him. He will. And what will He do? He will command. Again, we're leaders. And by default, we are leaders. We got married. We're leaders. We got married. God gave us children. Why well, never was a leader? No excuse. You are now a leader. Rise up to the challenge. Get alone with God and say, God, I didn't know this is what was expected. But I have no choice. Make me a leader. And just stay there. And cry that cry. And pray that prayer. Until God will come through. You have to be a leader. It's a mandate from God. If you slack on this thing, you will give accountability. You will give accountability. You will be called accountable. Too many fathers are the tail. Mothers and children rule the roost. Turn over with me to 1 Samuel 3 just for some sobering Sobering thoughts, 1 Samuel chapter 3. If you happen to be a father here that doesn't feel like a leader and hasn't been taking your responsibility, it's not a light matter. I tremble. I tremble at these verses. 1 Samuel 3, 13, 14. We know this is talking to Eli. He had not done a good job at all in raising his family. He'd done a very poor job. His, his sons became priests and they would do all kinds of things. They laid with the women at the door of the temple. How horrible. When they wanted their, when they, you know, the way it was set up is, is you would bring your sacrifice and you would cook it. And while it's cooking, good and cooked, then the priest got the opportunity to take a two-pronged fork, I think it was, and jab in and whatever came out was his. Well, these guys, they bustled up before it got cooked and they said, give me some of your meat now. No, 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 you can't do that. It has to be cooked. And they took it by force. They took their meat. And this is what God says to Eli. He didn't say it to his sons. He said it to Eli. For I have told him, that is Eli, that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. 
I will judge his house forever. I will judge his house forever. You know what the judgment was? His sons, they were killed in battle. Even the one wife died. Eli's family, it was over. Eli's family had no more opportunity to impact the known world. It was over. Eli fell over backwards and broke his neck. He was a man that was so heavy. I will judge his house forever. And therefore have I sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. That is so sobering. Talk about irreversible consequences. Irreversible consequences. In other words, God said it is over. You had your chance and your chance is over. No more opportunity. You could beg. You could pray. You can sacrifice. You can give offers. It's over. We have a responsibility. And so here we have Eli not restraining his sons. And God would kill his son with a violent death. And nothing could restrain the hand of God. I think of fathers commanding. I think of in the home. You know, there's fathers who somehow try to try to talk their one and two year old into submission. You know, even sitting in church, Johnny, you're not supposed to talk in church. Johnny, shh, Johnny, shh, don't talk in church. Come on. Johnny should so know by one and two that no means no. That he needs to know that. Fathers, we need to rise up. Johnny needs to know when, when he's one year old, he needs to know no means no. And I don't think he needs to be persuaded at that point and somehow talked into submission. He needs to know when he touches that thing he knows he wasn't supposed to, it's that quick, pain directly connected with the disobedience. They don't need a lot of, oh, Johnny, don't you make Dad so sad. Come on. They don't need to be persuaded. They need to know. No means no. But we lack the vision of child training. We lack the vision. We lack the vision. I can remember the days when my wife and I, especially my wife, shame on me, she did even better than I did, poured our times into the Godly Home series. We grabbed uh, teachings here. We grabbed teachings there. We sat at the feet of the older men and women in the congregation and said, tell us how to be parents. We can't miss this one. Today, Johnny, Look at daddy. You shouldn't do that. Ain't going to work. I always had a goal. Now in our church we sit segregated. Wives on that side. Ladies on that side. Men on this side. And if my wife was over there and one of the children started, you know, how they do, they start complaining, rutching, then I would look over and I would say, That should be the goal. 
we should be able to just by the look, be able to control them even at a distance. Now, we didn't do, you know, there were times that I didn't have a perfect family. And sorry, Roseanne, I still don't have a perfect family. We're working on it. But there are some goals we need to shoot for. We need to shoot really high. I know him. He will what? Command. He will command. I ain't going to somehow just influence my children. Were Were my children afraid of me? Only when they violated my command. I mean, I, I enjoyed my children. I played with them. We had good times together. We loved each other. They loved me. But they knew when you crossed the path, all of a sudden you saw a different father. And so it's, you be that really loving father, but you need to be stern. You need to be stern. Some fathers don't know how to be stern. And what is the, probably the most, I don't even know word, fathers actually argue with their teenagers. I just, that I don't comprehend. I've sat with fathers and sons, and the fathers and sons begin to argue right in front of me. I said, wait a minute, stop. You're going to hurt each other. This should never happen in a home. Father, you don't have your authority. The, son, I can't believe it. I would have never, ever talked to my father like you just got done talking to your father. I wouldn't, it wouldn't even cross my mind. You didn't do that kind of stuff. And yet, we argue. I told the father, don't argue. If your son wants to argue with you, just drop on your knees and start crying out to God and praying. Don't argue with them. And yet it happens. And I'm amazed how many homes it actually happens in. So we have to be men of steel and velvet. You probably heard that term already. You know, if there's one goal you need to have, you need to learn what it means to be a man of command, a leader. You need to know what it means to be stern and give guidance, be able to discipline. Um, But then on the other side, you need to be a person that everybody likes to be around. So kind gentle and caring. If you get those two things, fathers, if you get those two things in a good balance, you're ready to go. You are ready to go. You'll go a long ways. So kind, so loving, so fun, so tender, so compassionate, and yet a man of command. As I said, others some father, uh, earlier, some fathers are so soft. Even their, even their uh, five and six year, year old, you shouldn't do that. It makes your daddy sad. You're going to be a good boy for daddy now. It don't work. It don't work. You know we can. I've seen the signs. We can guarantee. That will have your dog trained in two weeks. Somebody got a purpose and a vision. Someone got a purpose and a vision. And they can do it. They can do it. You can too. You need a purpose and a vision. 
We need to get a vision for discipline. It's not the mother's job. Primarily, first of all, it's the father's job. If we're going to have a godly family, we need a vision of discipline. One and two-year-olds, as I said earlier, violation and pain should be immediate. They need to know. They don't need a lot of time to be persuaded. They need to know you violated the command and there's consequences for the command. That needs to happen. And so when our children were very young, we didn't take a lot of time to carting them off into another room, unless we're in church, um, carting them off into another room right immediately. Discipline. And I don't know, I don't know which one know what to think. You have to watch that a little bit as far as um, the way you discipline your children. But, you know, the, in Pennsylvania, we're allowed to spank our children. It is legal to spank your children. Uh, just talking with a social worker just recently, and they said, you just, just spank them where they are. And the way he said it, spank them where God made the place to spank. And we have no problem. It's when you're whacking them over the head and you're beating them over the chest or you're beating them over the back or over the legs or something. That's the problem. But I think a little child, you know, just a immediate. I used to snap them on the head or something. Just really quick. Now, don't try to do that with your three and four and five-year-olds. But when they're young, when they're little, Need to get a vision for child training fathers. Eight to ten, then we need explanation, definitely. Pain, yes. We need to use the proper tool. We can spend a lot of time at that. Just make sure you use something that stings. Johnny knows how to tense up those muscles and to ward off those blunt blows. I mean, when I went to school, the paddle was this wide and this thick with holes in it, and all you had to do is tense up good and proper, you could handle anything. But you use a rod. The Bible talks about sparing not the rod. Use something that stings. The more they tense up those muscles, the harder it's going to sting. It works. I'm telling you, it works. It works. Make sure you use the right tool. It says here that Abraham, okay, we have, he will, uh, God said, I know him. He will command his children and his household. I am amazed at that influence. It was more than just his children. It was all the servants in his house. He would have influence over everyone. I mean, his influence went further than just his own children. And so, wouldn't that be beautiful? I mean, we should be about, about like a bunch of elephants when we're together as a colony. You know, I, I understand that mother elephants discipline any of the other elephants, baby elephants. It's not. They're, they're a colony. They all, and so I think if we got a vision for child training and I come in here, you know, my children aren't behaving, that I can depend that you're going to step in and you're going to help me with my child training. So beautiful. Influential. Abraham was going to be influential. He had focus. He had vision. He believed in what he was doing. So fathers, remember your authority will go as far as what you're willing to be under authority. I, 
I just don't understand. We give away a message. Fathers that are not willing to submit to a church or to brothers and sisters, we give it away. We give it away. But Johnny, you need to submit to me. Well, do I have to submit to you? If you don't submit to your authorities, I hope there's no son here that would ever talk to their father like that. But fathers, it's serious. It's serious. Johnny's supposed to obey us, but it don't matter. 15 miles over the speed limit. Ah, it's no big deal as long as I don't get caught. Really? Really? My Bible tells me it's not going to work. If you're not under authority, you're not going to have authority. Where's my authority? Why don't I have authority? Well, maybe it's the first place to look. Are you under authority? Uh, your marriage in, it needs to be a team. It need, you need to work as a team. You need to pay the price. You need to pay the price. If your marriage ain't what it ought to be, it will have an effect. Together, you must lead your home. Together, you must be God conscious. Together, you must be community conscious. Together, you need to lead your home. Let's go on. Talk a little bit to the wives, to the mothers. Don't have a lot for you today, but you need to stand and support your husband. You need to. You're not the leader. You're not the leader. I wonder if I had all the women, um, don't do it. But I, I, would, I would be curious if I had you raise your hand if you sense that you would probably lead the home better than your husband. I'm guessing there would be a few in here. I mean, we're going to be honest. We're not bragging. We're not. But it happens pretty often that I look at a situation and say, you know, the wife has a better vision and probably has a better ability to lead the home than the man does. And you know what that makes out of the man? The man just kind of feels intimidated. And then he has, and I've heard it from fathers. My wife knows the Bible better than I do. And so we sit down and have family devotions. And then I try to teach the Bible. And then she says, well, it's not quite like that. It's like this. And then he gets intimidated. And then he can't even teach the Bible anymore. Now, I'm here to tell you, you are probably a better leader. But I'm here to tell you it will not work. My wife would be so much better at some of the, my leading, uh, uh, my responsibility than what I am. But as soon as a woman steps out of her place, no matter if she's better or not, it will not work. It's not God's design. It will not work. In Genesis, there where the curse was given... It says, Thy desire shall be unto her. Her desire shall be unto her husband. There's probably a lot of different ways that got be taken, but I just heard recently that someone thought maybe that's, maybe what that's saying is that a woman naturally will tend to override her husband's authority. I mean, 
There's just, I mean, just look in the big world, the corporate world. Women are always trying to rule the roost. We had a lady just wanting to be president. So we have that thing, and we even see it in our homes, where women tend to kind of feel like they could do a better job, or there's something within a woman that wants to kind of rise up and take leadership. Her desire shall be unto her husband. You may be a better leader, but mark my word, it will not work. Your responsibility is to fit your life into his. I'm sorry. I realize. That's quite a responsibility. A man could come and say, Oh, I want you to be my wife. Oh, yeah. What? Thank you. You just want me to come and fit into your life and help you fulfill your dreams. Yeah, that's right. I'm sorry, that's right. That's what you have to look forward to. But I tell you what, if you have a loving husband and you find yourself in that place, you'll find all the fulfillment you could ever wish for when it comes to marriage. Because that's the way God intended it to be. So it's your job to learn to know Him, to respect Him, to pray a whole lot for Him, to encourage Him, to catch His vision, and then help Him live out His visions and dreams. That's your job. Now I have a word yet to you men. Men, we make it really hard for our wives. We make it really hard for them. We're lazy. We're spineless. And the woman finally says, if he's not going to do it, I'm going to have to do it. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Women, never take sides with your children against your husband. Always, if you want authority, speak and live through your husband's authority. How many times have I heard my wife say, whatever dad says, whatever dad says, or we will do what dad wants, or I'm on your dad's side. Living through her husband's authority. You then can manage your children when dad is 500 miles away. If you learn that beautiful principle. Proverbs 31, verse 12, She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. That's a verse for you today. I'll say right now, She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Why am I who I am today? It is highly credited to a woman in Pennsylvania who stood by me, who believed in me, who supported me, who prayed for me, and stood by me when I did things wrong and when I did things right. One day my wife, years ago, my wife directly confronted me on some wrong things that I was believing. She said, I'm sorry, I don't believe it. 
I was an angry fella. I flew into her face and I gave her a tongue lashing. She zipped up and she only prayed about it. She only prayed about it. God answered her prayers. Women, you can't force your husband to be something that you want him to be. But you can pray. You can pray. Think about it. Think about the centurion. He came to Jesus and say, Oh, don't come under my house, uh, to my house. I'm not worthy of it. Just say the word and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man under authority. I say to this servant, Go, and he goeth. I say to this one, Come, and he cometh. Uh, say another one, Do this, and he does it. And so he was just saying to Jesus that you can do the same thing. Submission to authority gives you a power not only with men, but it gives you a power with God. God looks on and says, there's a woman who is truly submissive to her authority. I'm going to answer her prayer. I'm going to answer her prayer. But you have these rebellious women who are under authority. Then you go and they pray, Oh God, please have mercy on me. Pity me for my situation. Would you please straighten out my husband? And they wonder why God don't answer their prayer. A woman under authority has power with men and has power with God. And God says, There's a woman. I can't help but answer her prayer. I'll give her exactly what she wants. Now, of course, I'm jumping back and forth a little bit here. Husbands, I'm going to give you two rules, or two real simple rules to try to make it a little easier for your wife. You are the leader. She has to blend her life into yours. And uh, that can be interesting at the least. Number one, remember Jesus. He said, I call you not servants. Because a servant doesn't know what his master does. But I tell you all things because you are friends. Please, husbands, one of the things I hear probably the most complaint from women is, my husband doesn't talk. He doesn't share his heart. You need to share everything. You need to be the talk. Well, I'm not talkative. So what? You're going to have to learn to be talkative. Don't carry that crutch around. I'm not talkative. You need to learn. I mean, you, you got married. You're the one that chose to got ma- get married. You're a servant of God. And if you're going to say that you're a Christian and that you're Christ-like, well, then here's one real simple area. Just tell your wife everything you're thinking, everything you're dreaming about. That's what she wants to know. That's what she wants to know. Number two, be entreatable. Be entreatable. Actually, not in, in being entreatable, go the whole way and go to your wife and say, I want you to know, you have the freedom, you have all the freedom you need to come and speak into my life whenever you need to, whenever you want to. You have that freedom. We have to give them that liberty because there's a lot of women out there who are scared to talk to their husbands. They don't know if they should. They have these concerns. 
Uh, how often is? My husband doesn't have no vision for child training. I don't know what, how he wants me to run the home. I, I don't know these things. And she's even, can't even just go to him and talk to him. I mean, there's something wrong. Husbands, go to your wife and say, maybe not, I won't always respond to you right, but don't let that stop you. I want you to be able to come and speak into my life whenever I have to hear your heart. You can say anything to me. You can speak whenever you need to. And lastly, young people. Our world today has bought into the philosophy of the... Uh, our, our world today, their philosophy is, the philosophy of the age is... Young people are irresponsible till they're 20 years old. They're irresponsible. That's not the way God looks at it. When you, if you were a Jewish young man or young lady, at the age of 13, you were considered an adult. 13 years of age. They related to you like an adult. You were responsible in some ways like an adult. Today, just in a few minutes, I would like to share with all of you young people a secret. I want to share with you a secret. And I want to tell you there's somebody who doesn't want you to understand this secret. And his name is the devil. His name is the devil. In 2 Corinthians 4, Verse 4, it talks about Satan blinding the eyes of those that would believe lest they see the light. And so let's accept the fact. There are things that the devil does not want people to know. He's blinding them. And here's one. Young people, many of them don't know and understand. They mustn't or they definitely would not live the way they're living. But it's a secret that I need to reveal to you. Turn with me to Proverbs 30, verse 17. A secret that the devil does not want you to know. Proverbs 30, verse 17, The eye that mocketh at his father and despises to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out. What is the it? The eye. The eye that mocketh at his father, despises to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick his eye out, and the young eagles shall eat his eye. Well, you say, I never mocked my father. Really? I think simply what it's saying here, did you, did you ever choose to disobey your father? You mocked him. I believe that's the level of mocking here. So what are you saying? I know what I'm doing. I don't have to listen on you. I know what I'm doing. I know how to live my own life. You don't have to tell me how to live my life. Mocking the father. Disobeying the mother. That's pretty straightforward. I believe that both of them go together whether it's mocking the father or disobeying the mother. What happens? 
I'm here to tell you the secret. You will lose your eyesight. You will lose your eyesight. That's a secret that the devil doesn't want you to know. You'll lose your eyesight. Physical? No. Probably not physical. I believe what it's talking about is your discernment. You will lose your discernment. Eye. Light goes in through the eye. And uh, that's how light enters the heart. So if you lose your eye, you lose discernment. If you are blind, you don't know where you're walking. You'll probably fall in the ditch. So, if you mock your father, if you disobey your mother, you will lose your discernment. You will lose the ability to make wise decisions. Ha! Huh. Did you ever wonder? You saw somebody who said, I am not willing to listen to my father. I'm not willing to listen to my mother. And they go out and do their own thing. Did you ever watch them fall into the holes in life? And I've had it said. I've had young people tell me. I'll tell them. So you're willing to walk out from under your father's roof. You're willing to go and live your own life. I need to tell you something. You're going to be blind and you will end up where you didn't choose to go. Oh no. I'm not planning to go there. Okay. And how many times have they ended up exactly where they didn't want to go? That's because of this verse. Make wise decisions. Who here wants to lose the ability to make wise decisions? I'm going to go out. I'm going to find me a, a life out there. I'm sorry. You can't. Discernment. You'll lose your ability to make wise decisions. Satan doesn't want you to know it. Nobody wants to go through life incapable of making wise decisions. This is why later on in life, these folks say, What was I thinking? What was I thinking? Look at the prodigal son sitting there. And I'm only going to imagine that he's sitting there and he's thinking, how did I ever get here? How in the world did I ever get here? I was not planning to be in a pig pen, wishing to eat pig food. That was not the goal. How did I end up here? I had a lot of money. I had a lot of friends. I was going to go out and have myself a life. He found himself in the pig pen. Because of this principle. I mean it. God's principles work. They work. Well, I'm going to leave home when I'm 18. Hmm. Really? You're in for a surprise. You're in for a surprise. It sounds a little like Eve. Satan came to her and convinced her God's restrictive. God's restrictive. But she had no idea that the choice that she was about to make would be the most restrictive thing that she could have ever done. Ever in her life. Ah, oh, if only, if only somebody would have told me. Well, somebody did tell her. But she didn't understand everything. 
She didn't see through everything. Well, we don't have to see through everything. We don't have to understand everything. We can just say, this is what the Bible says. I'm going to believe it. I'm going to live by it. Did Satan tell her she would mess up her life? No, he did not. I'm sent here today to give away one of the devil's secrets that you're not supposed to know. The devil's secret that you're not supposed to know. If you mock your father, if you disobey your mother, the eagle in the valley shall pluck it out. What a challenge. Well, you young people are such an important asset. Don't ever, ever let anyone persuade you that you're just kind of a liability in the church. You know, when, when a 12, 13-year-old gets born again and we baptize them, I like to sit down with those young people and tell them, you know, you are, as far as God is concerned, you're an adult. You have a responsibility. And there might be big toes, there might be little toes in the congregation, there might be hands, and there might be feet, and all of these other things. And though you might just be a little toe, I'm here to tell you that the little toes are more important than probably the hands and the feet. You know what it says about the comely parts, the uncomely parts? Our comely parts, that's the things I showed to you, like my hands and my face, I... I spend very little time and money on my hands. I mean, just wash them a little bit, my face, wash them, comb the hair, and go on in life. But I put a lot of money into the rest of my body. Clothing. I mean, clothing costs money and time. I mean, you sisters spend a lot of time sitting, sewing, day after day, making clothing that is modest. And the Apostle Paul's using that as an illustration. Which one gets the most attention? The one that is the uncomely. So if you say, well, I'm just a little toe. I don't really have much to offer. Hey, you're probably the most important one here. So young people, you are important. You're important. So if we're going to have families, if we're going to have a church that is beautiful, then we're going to need fathers who step up to the plate. There is no excuse. You cannot use any excuse. I don't care if you don't have the giftings. God will give them to you. I don't care if you feel like, like you've tried and failed. You have to get up again. I don't care if your wife is a better leader than you are. God will not bless that. You need to get up and lead. Wives, you need to fit your life into your husband's life like a glove, a hand fits into a glove. Young people, you are very, very important. We need you in the congregation. We want you. And then if all of us could just live for the bigger calls, if all of us, I mean young people, get the vision. You might be 15. Get the vision. To, to learn to know what the bigger cause is. What, where are we going? What are we doing? What is the heart of the brotherhood? And you come alongside of there. I tell you, you'll have such a wonderful life. You'll be blessed. You'll be excited. You'll love to come to church. But we all got to work together for the same cause. You know, I don't know. It just slipped my mind. Didn't I tell you I'd tell you a story? Somehow that this is the last this is the last service. Ah we can make another one.
Anyhow, yeah, I did tell you I would. I forgot that. I guess I didn't even have it in my notes. So as we think of the colony of honeybees, I have learned so much this week just from that. Uh, I'm just amazed how so much of that fits into just so many lessons just fit so well with the community life of church. But anyhow, I wanted to share this one story. Um, it was back in the days of the Civil War, and the, we had uh, in that time we had Mennonite families who would not go to war, who would not fight. And uh, this specific family lived in the state of Virginia. And uh, of course, the way that worked is it didn't have they didn't have a draft where you had to show up at a draft board. Uh, they just came and recruited you, young men. You were 18, 19, 20. Anytime the soldier could knock on your door, bust into the door and say, how old are you? Um, 19 year old, come with me. And they did it. They did it. And young men left their homes crying, leaving behind their family, their wonderful family, and being drugged into the army. They had no choice. And then they were put guns in their hands and, and they were told to shoot. And, and some of them wouldn't shoot. And eventually they just finally said, well, you're more of a liability than you are an asset, and they just shoot them and let them behind. That's the kind of thing that was going on. This one family, um, this one family knew that this could happen. The army was moving closer. The southern army, army was moving closer, and they were going through houses recruiting young men. And this Mennonite man, Peter, he said, what do I do for his 19-year-old son? I have to find a way. I have to find a way. Him and his wife sat up late one night. We have to do something tonight, Jet. They might come into our house tomorrow. And so the wife said, well, can we? Couldn't we hide him? Couldn't we, couldn't we find a place that we could hide him till hopefully the war's over? And at that point, of course, they didn't know how long the war would last. Maybe it would only last two days or five days or two weeks, surely we could hide him. And Peter said, you know, this boy's known all over the neighborhood. We can't hide him. They all know we have a boy here. They know we have 19-year-old, whatever his name was. And so the father thought long through the night, what shall he do? And then he thought, hmm, he wonders if the doctor, who was the doctor, was sympathetic to the Mennonites. He wonders if the doctor could do anything for him. His wife kind of like, the doctor, I mean, he's a healthy boy. What could the doctor do? Well, he said it's worth a try. I have no idea what else to do. So he went the next morning, first thing in the morning. He got to the doctor's house. He knocked on the door. The doctor was eating breakfast. doctor welcomed him in and says, Could you help me somehow? Could you somehow help me keep my son out of the army? doctor says, I don't know. And this doctor sat there. His plate was full of food. He just sat there and he thought. And he thought. And he thought. And he thought. And then finally he said, You know, Peter? He says, I do got an idea. Oh, Peter said, What can I do? How, how can we fulfill this? What, what is my responsibility? He said, Just go home and have your son at the house. I believe this was the night before yet. I don't even think you... I, I, maybe it was the evening. I'm not sure. But have your ha son at the house at 7 o'clock in the morning. Be ready for me to come. 
And so Peter goes home. He's so excited. The doctor has an answer. Later on, I think he wished he would have asked the doctor what the answer was. Next morning, guess what the doctor does? He comes walking in the walk to Peter's house. He's carrying this big box. Peter opens up the door, welcomes him in, and finds out he has a hive of honeybees. And now Peter's mind is like, what does that have to do with keeping my son out of the army? He said, have your son lay in bed. Took the box over there, put gloves on, got a whole handful of honeybees, and scattered them over the top of his son. And he started stinging up and down. And you know when honeybees sting, they put off a, a uh, scent that tells all the other honeybees, danger, problems, enemy. And so they were all stinging this boy. And the mom was, oh! He was, oh! And she felt so bad for him. Oh, please, isn't that enough, doctor? No, it's not enough yet. Let them sting. I don't know how many stings that poor boy got. Finally, gathered his bees up, and he went home. His boy swelled up. His whole body swelled up. And he actually went unconscious. I have no idea if the doctor knew what he's doing or not. He was unconscious for three days. And Peter was really feeling bad. They, Peter, as far as Peter was concerned, the boy's going to die. Anyhow, it was at the second day of his state of unconsciousness that, sure enough, they're eating. The army was at the door. Do you have a 19-year-old boy in this house? Yeah, they said. He's not fit to go in the army. Come look. And they went over and they looked and said, Oh my. (laughs) And they left. And he never had to enter into the armed forces. Now they told me he was unconscious for three days. This is a true story. He was unconscious for three days and took a long time till he was back to normal. But it was the time that the honeybees saved a young man from being forced into the army. I'm not sure if that was so wise. I don't know if the doctor knew exactly what he was doing. It worked. It worked. I don't advise it. But it was the day that the honeybees kept the man out of the army. Well, thank you very much. May God bless you. Thank you for allowing me to enter into your lives this week. I have been made better by it. I have. Thank you. God bless you. All I can say is, take what I said, these few feeble, stammering words, take them, take them to your prayer closets. Let God do what He wanted to do with the words that He has given you. You take them, and if God is glorified by a church that becomes so involved in the greater matter, and the testimony starts going out of this place, you ought to see what's going on over there at Zion. May God get all the glory and all the honor. 
God bless you and please, it's only a 15-hour drive that direction. If you get into the area, do me one favor. Look us up. We have an invisible sign outside our house. All are welcome, anytime, 24 hours of the day. Just come right on in. So, we have a bed and breakfast that is not officially advertised. You're welcome. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you. I know that you have given to us this morning some really tough things. Some of us fathers need to repent. Some of us fathers need to get a fresh vision. Some of us fathers need to do business with God. Some of us as wives, we need to acknowledge we have not been in our place. Some of us young people have bought into the philosophy of the age. Oh, have mercy on us. Lift our heads. Lift up our heads. Give us hope. Lord, I pray the hands that are hanging down, that they would be lifted up. The knees that are feeble and shaking, that they would be strengthened. Make plain paths for our feet, God, that that which is lame among us, that that which is lame among us would not be turned out of the way. God, have mercy on us. I pray a big blessing, Lord, a big blessing on this congregation. Thank you for allowing me to have a little bit of an opportunity to enter into their lives. Thank you for the love that they have showered upon me. Father, I pray you would make this congregation a testimony of your grace and your power and your blessing. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.